All set for Hull? All packed up and ready to go. Can't wait to join you tomorrow. It's very exciting. Romantic. A new adventure with old friends. I do feel bad about Wendy, though. Are you sure she is okay about us? Well, yes, of course. I don't want her to think of me as a scarlet woman stealing you away. Well, actually, yeah. Disaster strikes again. <laughs> What's happened now? The talk of the street. Talk of the street. The talk of the street. Talk of the street. The talk of the street. Talk of the street. The talk of the street. Talk of the street. Welcome to episode 234 of the Talk of the Street, an unofficial Cornish Street Catcher podcast that thinks the wet rot is the least of the problems and it's Nick in his skin suit that will be the final nail in the Beastles coffin. I'm Gavin. And I just realised this week we forgot to bury the cat. What cat? Sweetie cat. I was clearing off the credenza. I was clearing off the credenza to set up all of our um, nativity sets. This oh week God. and and dust and dust it off, and what's the credenza? It's where the TV sits. Oh, the TV thing, right? right. And um, and I picked up this tin and I'm like, "What is this tin?" And it's Sweetie Cat. <laughs> Sweetie Cat has been sitting up by the TV this whole time since she's died. Oh, the ashes of the cat. Yes, not the remains or the well, there's the corpse of the cat. The cremains of the, cremains, the cat. Okay. Yes. What do you want to do with that? Probably. Sounds a bit too hard to... Well, yeah, we can't bury her now, obviously, but no. eventually... We, we Flush can... it in the toilet? No. Eventually, we, in the spring, we can bury her back with Teddy. Mm. Is Teddy the only one out there? I think Teddy's the only one out there, yeah? That's the official line, and we're sticking to it. <laughs> have you this week? Uh, yeah, I also realised the kids have not done a very good job of dusting the credenza this year. Huh. So, well, colour me surprised. <laughs> Yeah, still really busy trying to get things all wrapped up, literally and figuratively, before we leave for Christmas. What's your figuratively wrapped up? Like work stuff oh, and, okay, right. and podcast stuff and right. house stuff right. and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been worked to death, you poor old pack mule, you. We are supposed to have a, a easy couple of weeks going into Christmas and New Year and Yay. not a bit of it. No. I've been actually busier just now than I have been at various points of the year. Yes. Which isn't good. No. You had the, the incredible brainwave last week <laughs> where, when we were planning our Christmas trip out because we're mm-hmm. going to Connecticut before Christmas and mm-hmm. we typically drive back on New, New Year's. Year's Day. And I can't be bothered this year and I couldn't be bothered last year, but we didn't go last year, but we're having to go this year. And yeah. It still can't be bothered. But then you came in to Screwed. the... No, nothing to do with that. And then <laughs> you came in and said, what are your plans for, for coming back? Mm-hmm. And I'm in my mind thinking, well, New Year's Day, because we always do New Year's Day. And mm-hmm. then you're like, but the kids are on the plane. We can leave whenever we like. Mm-hmm. And oh, the clouds parted. Mm-hmm. And a shaft of sunlight came down. It was like... You're right. How, yep. could we, how did we not think about that? Yeah. So yeah, so I'm a little bit happier about this. <laughs> yeah, and I think Nick may be just staying with 
my mom the whole time because his dad is coming out from Oregon, but he's coming out the week after New Year's. And it's like, why on earth would he come out the week after New Year's? Cheaper flights. Yeah, but then you can't see your son. Who are you calling Scrooge? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it'll be nice. We can drive back through Canada and chill. Oh, if we can get the Oh, yeah, that reminds me. I need to get his certificate, a copy of his certificate. All this is a long way to say there will be no talk of the street next week because we're on vacation. Right. We don't do this when we're on vacation. And we'll be driving. We Um, have in the past done this while we're on vacation, but not this year because we'll be back soon enough. Yeah. So expect a a pre-New Year episode that will cover the Christmas episode. So the week leading up to Christmas and the week after Christmas, we will cover in one foul swoop. I imagine that it will be lots of summer staring into the camera. I, I have a feeling Summer won't be in it at all. Be still my beating heart. Because <laughs> she's run away, remember? Oh, well, we will get to that. She's an adult now, remember? And that's what adults do. That's right. They run away. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> Shall we preamble, my dear? Yes, please. Give us some of that. Well, I guess this is the festive one, then. Give us some of that festive Cory news. The most loved up couple on the street this week isn't amongst the cast and characters. Corey superfans Adam Lantham and Bailey Lister got engaged this week on the street during a tour when Adam popped the question in front of the Rovers. He did. How adorable is that? It was adorable. They are so cute. I'm surprised that this doesn't happen more often. You would think. Because, well, it requires Corey superfans to be in relationships, I guess. Right. Yeah. Because if only one of you is a Corey super fan, mm-hmm. and if it's not the dude who's the Corey super fan, it doesn't really work. Right. The dude would be like, why? <laughs> so I guess I suppose this only works with gay men, if I may be a, a bit stereotypical in this situation. Or, or for the likes of us as Corey super fans. Well, yes. <laughs> right. Yes. But <laughs> you proposed in An airport. Baggage, baggage A. Caracelli. Carousel A in Logan International Airport in Boston, Massachusetts. I'm sure there's video of that somewhere from the circle of people who surrounded us that day and gave us applause. There was a couple of people. There's more than a couple. Was it a circle though? Yes. It was the circle of life. Arken got to meet the king this week as Bill Roach swung by Windsor Castle to pick up his OBE. Just swung by, picked it up. On his way to trio. Sainsbury's? Or? <laughs> like, oh, I got this thing to do. Or Hull. <laughs> Is that the same direction? No, that's a long way round. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, king Charles's fingers seem to have... They're not quite as swollen at the moment. If the pictures are to be, be believed... Excellent news. Yes. Him and his gout. Anyway. <laughs> and finally, thanks to the holidays, the schedule for Corey has altered slightly. With an earlier 7.30 start on Friday the 23rd. 7 p.m. on Christmas Day. 7.30 on Boxing Day. 7 o'clock on the 28th. A half hour episode on the 29th at 8. Another half hour episode on the 30th at 7.30. And a half-hour episode on New Year's Eve at 8 o'clock. I am already exhausted. 
Right, that's a lot of Corey. That's a lot of Corey. That we will be hitting up in one episode. Yes. Oofed. Oofed, I say. Oofed. Yeah, we might have to do an abridged version. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. Oh, we're here all day anyway. Yeah, true. We've got a lot of movies to watch. That'll be fun. And dead presidents to see on our way back. We do. Three dead presidents to see. Three dead presidents. Maybe five if we go through Quincy. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Is that Corey News? That's Corey News. You didn't do your little outro. Uh, That's Corey News? That's Corey News. And now we'll podcast for coffee. We're drinking our own coffees this week, but I'm drinking my own coffee out of a lovely travel mug that I got from my boss's boss. It's very pepperminty. Yeah, and it's got my name on it. Woo! Gavin, it says, because that's my name. That is your name. Now, it's one of my uh, co-workers who makes these, or I don't know what you would call it, the sleeve for the mug. Mm-hmm. And her, she got a little workshop mm-hmm. in her backyard, her she shed, she calls it. A little pottery wheel and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she makes decorative coverings for just regular travel mugs. It looks pretty nice, though. Mm-hmm. Only one of these in the world. Yes, and you've and got, got it. it. What are you drinking? Oh, and the, oh, the Labrador thing, Retriever. If you have any inclination to send us a wee Christmas present of in, coffee in the form of ground coffee beans you can do so by going to ko-fi.com that's ko-fi.com slash the talk of the street five bucks gets us a couple of cups of regular gas station joe ten bucks gets us something a little fruitier from the big bees from the big bees I had both big bee and gas station coffee yesterday wow yeah because we were out Pushing of coffee in the morning so oh, I had to we microwave old coffee for my first cup. Oh, you did not. I'd been there all day. I did <laughs> because I had nothing else. <laughs> so, and then after you guys left, I went to Big B's because I had to drop a package off at UPS anyway and got myself a vegan Bragel. And then, uh, anyway. yeah. And then a- after dropping Steli off at the Winterfest, I had to get gas so i went and got gas and then got some gas station coffee to keep me up until 11 o'clock at night there you go and that's Corey news <laughs> again <laughs> since when did Corey news <laughs> cover your coffee consumption i think it's a welcome addition <laughs> right in and let us know what you think about this new section of where helen got her coffee from mm. and also at what time yes and now this Welcome, welcome. Welcome to last year tonight with me, John Oliver. Just enough time to quickly talk about designated liver. Designated liver. This has something to do with Peter? That's right. This was Steve's idea to get Curtis and Ken to be the designated livers for him and Peter's drinking session. I was Gavin and you were Boo Souls. What? Which I still don't get. But apparently it had something to do with succession. Oh, okay. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. Boo souls? Boo souls. Yeah, that's what I said. Saying boo to souls, to having a soul. Oh. 
because people on that show don't have any souls. That's right. Because they're wealthy. Christmas was creeping up on me. It's doing it again this year. Mm-hmm. The world was going to hell in a handbasket, and we were talking about Coronation Street. I've learned tons about Photoshop by making Billy invisible and putting him in places he shouldn't be. Sally's dismissive approach to Maria's political ambitions comes back to bite her. The stress of the situation with Daniel manifests itself as the makings of an eating disorder for Summer, who hastily regrets ordering the dirty burger at the bistro. Zidane feels like he's on easy street, as it appears insurance is going to blame dead Hashim for the speed dial fire and pay out in full when a figure from his past arrives unannounced. Sarah thinks it's bad enough that Adam put it around a bit when he was at uni and her mood does not improve when she learns that her new BFF, Lydia, also studied at Edinburgh. Whoa. Yet another road traffic accident forces Audrey to get her eyes tested while David's homeschooling of Max frustrates everyone. A coughing homeless stew is rumbled at Trim Up North so Kelly is determined to find someone else who can help him get well. Emma is shocked to discover that Curtis has forgotten to take his meds with him to the Three Peak Challenge which leads her to make an even more shocking discovery and Ken gets wired into tequila and Mary's clipboard is massive and Clint sells mechanical baby Jesuses. Our moment of the week was Audrey talking to Max about 1950s haircuts. Delightful. That was pretty good. And a boring moment of the week was Daniel and Ken in the bistro. No more detail than that. <laughs> That's all it says. Hmm. We may have a repeat this year. <laughs> and that was Coronation Street. And the talk of the street. This time, last year. Shall we dive in, my dear? Yes, please. All right. Our first storyline this morning is summer vacation. Boo. Do you know, I thought we were going to get some stretch a little bit before we get to this. (laughs) Limber up. Uh, Stretch. And a bend. Monday morning, and Esther and Mike are pestering Summer on the phone about her upcoming 12 week scan. She tries to temper their excitement, but they're both super excited and will not be tempered. Amy tells them that as soon as they tell Mike and Esther, everything can get back to normal. You two can go back to being just Summer and Aaron again. Yeah. And I don't think they've ever just been Summer and Aaron. It's always been Summer and Aaron and some massive catastrophe. Correct. Later, Aaron and Summer meet up with Billy in Nina's roles. He's lamenting the fact that he never gets to see Summer much anymore. So Aaron lies and says that they're going Christmas shopping. So Billy needs to fuck off and let her go on with that. Billy suggests that they have dinner together at the Korean place later. Presumably at dinner time. Mm. And they all agree. Because Summer, if she likes one thing, it's... Korean food. That's Korean food. That's Everybody knows this about which, Summer, right? Which is fine. Korean food is delicious. It is. Aaron and Summer kill some time at the Christmas market when who should appear but Esther and Mike, who Boo. just so happened to be in the area and offered to give Summer a ride to the hospital. Unable to say no, that's what happens. And in the car park, Esther and Mike want to go with to the scan. Despite having a mother in hospice, Esther apparently has nowhere else to go. Mm. But they quickly put the kibosh on that and say that they will be in touch. So in the hospital, Aaron and Summer sit in the waiting room for an appointment they don't have when Mike suddenly appears. Apparently Esther had the great idea that seeing as his name is going to be on the birth certificate, he should be the one seeing the scan. Creepy! (laughs) Even though he looks like Summer's dad. Yes. Aaron tries to put Mike off, but Mike 
kind of hates Aaron and tells him to shut the fuck up. It's about to get much more awkward either way because then Esther appears to tell Mike that her mum has just died. So they both rush off to deal with that. And Summer is once again off the hook and she decides to keep their secret a secret for a little bit longer. Right. Instead of just ripping off the band-aid and having, you know, both your mum and your baby die Mm -hmm. in one fell swoop. Yep. Which is the right thing to do. Well, is anything anymore the right thing to do? Ish. Okay. Back on the street, they immediately run into Billy, who's excited for their dinner, but Summer pretends to be sick again and suggests a rain check, and Billy can barely hide his disappointment. Yes, because he's already made a reservation. Right. So at the young crew flat, Amy is not impressed when she finds out that they still haven't come clean, and for some reason, Summer attempts to climb on some morality high ground because of Esther's dead mum, and she calls Amy sanctimonious, and Amy says, well, I don't know what that means. Amy definitely knows Amy, what sanctimonious yeah, means. Amy absolutely knows what sanctimonious means. What are you trying to pull, writers of Coronation Street? Mm-hmm. Go fuck yourselves. Oh. <laughs> and have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> yes. Later, Summer has sourced a photo of a 12-week scan on her phone, and when Mike arrives, this is the photo she presents him, but he seems to be he seems to have been stung by the old imaginary dead baby scam before, and he notes that there's no name or date or time on this photo, and what's it doing on her phone? And by Summer's reaction, he can tell that something's up, and he questions if she's telling the truth. And, and then, then we it breaks don't away. Get to see her confess, and I was furious about this. Yeah, because we've been building up to this right for weeks, maybe yeah. even months. Yeah. of this build-up of lie upon lie about this massive conspiracy that she's that she's unleashed, and then it finally gets to the point where the rubber's hitting the road, and she's going to have to come clean about this and we don't see how she comes clean about this right we see the aftermath of it which is right. a furious mike and when he learns the date of the miscarriage he instantly knows that this was before he handed over more cash to them mm-hmm. and he demands it back or he's going to go to the police fat chance says aaron who reminds him that buying babies is illegal and mike jumps at the chance to have a swing at aaron but summer promises that she'll pay him back all the money and she apologizes you disgust me says mike yeah. and he leaves yeah Disgusting Mike is disgusted. Yeah. Nothing about this is good. No, no. (laughs) And he and later Esther both treat Summer like she had the miscarriage on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like there is no concern for her well-being in any of this. Not one person is like... It is so awful that you lost this baby. How are you feeling about this? Are you okay? Nobody. Nobody on either side, we will discover later, cares how she feels about having a miscarriage. No. And it's gross. No, but that seems to be like the eating disorder, just a forgotten part of the storyline. Right, yeah. It's never been really examined. No, carefully at all compare this to maria with her miscarriage right that was a really heartfelt right moment and you, you could very clearly see how distressed devastated she, was. she and and gary were Absolutely. yeah compare it to this where you just have basically aaron no idea what that was something just <laughs> fell and i don't know what it was and i don't know where it fell from and it was heavy but gravity still works yes <laughs> and ghosts right so, so, so yeah, Aaron 
briefly mentions that you're all right. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I'm, I'm just really upset for, for Esther and Mike. Mm-hmm. There was never a good way that this was going to end. No. This, this isn't a good way. No. And and yeah, the the money aspect of it, I guess, when after all the lies that she's told, mm-hmm. why does she tell the truth about when she had the miscarriage? Right, yeah. <laughs> just, just lie and like say five it days just later happened. Or whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> just we just no found sense. out about it today, which is why I went and got a picture of a scan because I didn't want to tell you today because your wife's mum died today. There you go. Yeah. Problem solved. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, once again, for all of Summer's faults, and there are a lot of them, there is like zero focus on her emotions or her pain or her feelings. Even she is sweeping them under the carpet. Right. And it's just like, why does this show hate women so much? A question I will ask later as well. Yeah. Uh, To the extent that I might ask that question later. <laughs> on Wednesday, Aaron is doing his thumbs and decides that the best way to get 20 grand is for him to rob a bank. I couldn't, they had him sit down with a calculator. <laughs> He's sitting with a calculator. He truly knows that he doesn't have 20 grand. No, and surely he no knows way that the 20 can... grand is spent because if right. he had the 20 grand, he would have spent it on his dad. Right. Good money after bad. Right. Without a doubt, right? Yeah. But but he would have had it there, but they had him with a calculator. Trying but to figure out how long it would take him to stuck behind his ear with one of those twenty grand at his job. Green banker visors on just trying to work out how he's gonna get twenty grand. Robbing a bank is probably the the best way of doing it. Summer thinks he's joking. I'm not sure he was. No. Amy appears and demands the rent money just to make matters worse. No. Summer goes to see Aaron later. When he's at work, seems that she tried to ask Carla for a £20,000 pay rise. And <laughs> Carla told her to get to fuck. Yes. Aaron thinks that it's all hopeless. They can't pay Mike and Esther back, so they shouldn't even try. Then someone sees Paul and decides, hmm, there might be a way to make this work. Right. After all. Yes. She... As I see my dad, who makes the least amount of money, walk by. <laughs> <laughs> so Summer convenes the Grand Council of the Exes and tells her three dads, that she plans to go travelling to get over the year that she's had and asks for their help to fund it. £10,000 should just about do it because they've decided that if they can give half back... Right, or the 10, they shouldn't have after, to give the other no, half back because she was still pregnant during that time. They shouldn't have to give any of it back. No, right, because it was illegal. Yeah, all of this is illegal and they need, they need to make their peace with that. Right. <sighs> After a lot of hemming and hawing, Billy agrees to give them what he can, and God's given him a bonus recently, so he's quids in. I'm not sure what Summer plans to do here, even if they do come up with the money. She's going to hide? Or what's she doing for a year? Because the £10,000 that she's given to go away, she's going to give to Mike and Esther, so so how does this possibly work? I don't know. (sighs) Later in the pub, Paul and Todd need to be junior partners in this donation malarkey because they have no money. Billy, though, is suspicious of the precise amount of money that she asked for and her behaviour recently has been weird. Mm. Well, Billy is is finally being an observant parent for once. Interesting. (laughs) Meanwhile, Aaron and Summer leave the flat to find Esther and Mike camping outside waiting for them. 
They've had a think and decide that rather than get the money back, they want what Summer promised them in the first place. A baby. This time, they'll do it properly, and Mike will be the donor, and Summer will be a proper surrogate. Aaron is appalled, but Summer genuinely seems to be contemplating this and asks for some time to think it over. Aaron thinks this is fucking insane, but Summer reckons it it might be the best way. Right. So, oh, this 18-year-old wasn't able, you know, had a miscarriage, and we want her to be our surrogate anyway. I'm at the point where I don't think Esther really just wants a baby. She wants Summer's baby. Why, why, why does would it have you not, to be Summer's yeah. baby? Why would, why would you not say, well, this didn't work. You know what? We need to be honest with ourselves and do this legally. Let's go and t- talk to a surrogate broker and, and do this the proper way with an adult woman, you know, who has... Who does not have diabetes. There you go. Or an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Who can carry a baby to term. Who hasn't just had a miscarriage in the last month. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They want... She just had a miscarriage and you want to get her up the duff like a week later? Yeah. She just had a miscarriage yesterday. You know, like all those multiple miscarriages that That you've had? That you had? Talk about throwing bad money after good. Good money after bad even. Yeah. She wants Summer's baby, I think, for a satanic ritual. But we'll get to that. Either that or it's Mike who wants some, who wants Summer's baby, because that's even creepier. You know, it was when they he said seems that, very excited to be the donor. Which I presume is turkey-based or method. Right, not yes. The, not the, not he's the, going to have sex with no, Summer. No, God no. Let's hope not. Oi. Ah. Yeah, these people seem really obsessed with Summer now, and that's not a good thing. On their own, Aaron tries to point out why this is a terrible terrible idea, and this was supposed to reduce the amount of lines that they were telling, not increase them. Amy comes in and gets the story. She thinks Mike and Esther are weirdos who are taking advantage of Summer because she's out of her mind and she's 18 years old. Right, yes. Well done. Yes, which is exactly what's happening. And Summer says, they're not weirdos. And also, they're They're not weirdos. And they're not manipulating me. Yes, they are manipulating you. Amy threatens to call Billy, but Summer tells her to mind her own business and storms out, saying, you and me are through if you do that. And she goes to the pub on her own, where she's quickly tracked down by Billy, who tells her that she should be ashamed of herself. He knows everything. He knows that she's selling her baby. Summer tries to play it down, saying that she's just going to be a surrogate and it's perfectly legal. But Billy also knows that she tried to sell the baby that she miscarried. Ah, yeah, about that. Yes. She tells him this has nothing to do with him. She says, it was five minutes ago when you were trying to con money out of me. Right. And she tells him that she's a grown-up and this decision is hers and hers alone. And she tells him to leave. I'm a grown-up. Yet I tried to con money out of you to take care of this whole situation. Does not explain why she needed the money in the first place for a really dumb reason that she will explain later to someone else. But again, again, here's someone who is supposed to love and care for Summer and not and i understand why he's angry i totally get it but there is no sympathy and no concern for her well-being after a miscarriage from billy no no you know are you okay i'm so sorry that this happened to you 
And also, it was bad and illegal for you to try to sell this baby. But are you okay after losing this baby? That must have been horrific for you. Nothing. Well, I think he'd already given out her sympathy when he thought that she had a, an abortion. Right. He, but still. I'm not sure he knows exactly what's right and what's wrong here. Just to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. I think what he's trying to do here is snap her back into reality with the grim realisation of what she's doing. Yeah. But Rather I think than try to pat her on the head and, and say they're there. Yeah, but I think a little bit of empathy with this would have not gotten her, would have helped in not getting her dander up so high. Later, she gets back home and she, she starts leaning at Amy for grassing her up. But it wasn't Amy who was the grass; it was Aaron. She's furious, says that she trusted him, and all of this trying to give away his baby and then have another baby by another man's spooge was all for him and his dad. She tells him to leave. She needs some space away from him. Right. And, so he leaves. And she loves him so much that she didn't even tell Billy that that's what she needed the money for. And that's so dumb. Mm. Really? Why would, why would you think that that would be something that you should lie about? That maybe Billy might have some advice for you as far as all of this is concerned? Because he's a vicar. You know, he's been trained in taking care of lost people. Mm. I'm sure there's an... Billy a- has... Well, yes. At some point, he had to have some training in his job. Yes? I think just a a fat, drunken man came over and asked him if he wanted to be an archdeacon. (laughs) And and that was that. No, I mean, well, before that. Oh, okay. When he went to... um, Just before or after he was a heroin addict? (laughs) Before. Okay. Because he was a priest before he was a heroin addict, yes? I don't think he was ever a priest. Well, vicar or whatever. He had to go to... um, Oh, what's the name of the what's the name of the school for religious studies? It starts with Se- a seminary. 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 He had to have gone to seminary at some point, yes? One would hope. And I'm More sure likely seminary. Am I right? Oh, Am I right? oh that's racist. <laughs> no, it's a patum pum. It was on a a a bath drum instead of a regular drum, instead of a snare drum. Um, I've lost my trade of. I'm Good. sure that there's. Good. I'm sure there's an AA meeting and an Al-Anon meeting at that church. Mm-hmm. Both that, of these kids need to be. Mm-hmm. Both of these kids need to be in an Al-Anon meeting to be set straight about what you can and cannot do for alcoholics. On Friday, and Nina's rolls. Craig nearly bumps into someone with an empty cup. She just cannot. Catch a break. Yeah, it's hilarious. The two scenes Craig is in this week. Yes. She bumps into Billy and Aaron, who are double teaming her, but not like that. Not like but that. But she storms out before they can get stuck into her, but not, but like, not that. like that. This leaves Billy and Aaron to talk about the situation. Billy tells Aaron that he's a good guy and he was doing the right thing by telling them. Then they try to find her, but to no avail. But Billy is determined to put a stop to this surrogacy nonsense by any means, and he rips his dog collar off. Yes. Shit just got personal. Yes. Yes, because apparently ripping your dog collar off makes you invisible to God. Mike and Esther turn up Billy's after he threatens to go to the police, but it does no good. They insist that they haven't taken advantage of someone. In fact, it's the other way around. She's taking advantage of them. And this is God's will. And they leave. Great job, Billy. That really showed them. Summer has finally been tracked down by Todd and Paul, who think the surrogacy is madness. And Billy shows up, starts screaming at Summer to stay away from Mike and Esther, and he's going to grass them up to the police. Summer says if he does that, he won't see her for dust. 
Yeah, and it's ridiculous because Paul and Todd were actually doing a really good job of being sympathetic to her, still not really showing any sort of concern about the fact that she had a miscarriage, but more far more sympathetic than Billy. Mm. You know, saying, "Yeah, we understand, but it was still it's still not a great idea." And then all of their good work is undone by five seconds of Billy. <laughs> five hundred days of summer, five seconds of Billy. <laughs> Billy is at the police station, but Paul tells him to think about this, saying that Mike and Esther will turn us on Summer and Aaron. Summer could get the jail here, I'm not sure how. So Billy decides not to go to the police, thinking that Mike and Esther have won. Then Aaron calls Billy and shows him a note from Summer, telling them that she's moved out of the flat, taking her stuff, and she warns them not to try and find her. Aaron thinks this is all their faults. Too bad, so sad. And that's as far as we get with that story. Where could she this possibly week, go? She has no money. No. Nowhere to go. Well, she's got one place to go. Yeah, but supposedly Mike and Esther haven't seen her either. Of course, they could be lying. Of course, they're lying. (sighs) She was supposed to be the smart one. (laughs) Oxford bound, no less. Yeah. She was supposed to be the smart one. This is kind of what I was thinking was going to happen. Although, I think it's a little bit you is thought it, Mike was going to force himself on her, remember? I, th- I said, you owe me a baby. And that's pretty much what they said. That's true. You thought it would be grosser, though. Still pretty it's gross. Still pretty gross. And still just, you know, building off of the back of summer suffering just to make a story. And just completely changing her personality as the story warrants. And it's just, it's such rubbish. It's so bad. I'm wondering if Mike and Esther have a a basement that's maybe soundproofed. Because if so, I can guess where some are sleeping tonight. So there was a moment where, that we didn't get to see, Mm -hmm. where Summer confesses Mm -hmm. and uh, Mike is furious. Mm -hmm. Which would have been the time to start telling everybody because mm-hmm. Mike knows now mm-hmm. there was I think a, a, a glimmer of a, of an end to all this right and the, the immediate moments after that that yeah. were that were obviously ignored and skimmed over and for all that Summer says that she hates this line and this will mean no more line. She sure loves to lie. She does. And she sure loves to cover one lie with another lie. And she's doing it. And he, and now Aaron's doing it as well because Aaron was kind of always pretty um, pretty against the line. All this right, yeah. stuff. Even though all of this is supposed to be for him, he's mm-hmm. constantly saying to her, please don't do this. Right. Because N- not that once just, has he asked her for it. No. And... It just compounds, you know, guilt upon him that she chooses to do this. Right. You know, because because it's all for him. She He has to stay, sort of thing. And she acts like, oh, I'm an adult now. I can do what I want. Because and, she's 18. And yet is constantly, constantly, constantly seeking not helpful advice from the adults in her life because you know carla knows a thing or two about alcoholics Mm -hmm. 
her boss, Carla, instead of asking her for a raise, maybe ask her, maybe say, you know, we're in the situation with my boyfriend's dad where he's just really abusive and stuff and he feels really guilty. What can we do to stop him? And Carla can say, you can't stop him. Take him to a meeting. Right. Start there. Right. I attend this Al-Anon meeting and blah, blah, blah. Come with me next week. You know, or Abby or right. Kev. Right. Kev, who, again, is Aaron's boss, even though he, for some reason, he asked Tyrone for a raise, for some reason, instead of Kev. Oh, Kev and Tyrone are partners. Yeah, still, it's weird to ask Tyrone, especially considering Tyrone's own other storyline. Well, yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Mm. But it's just, there are so many people who seem to love and care about these kids. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to any of them no. for help or for advice unless they need money. And it's just, it breaks my heart because this is, this is what the show is supposed to all be about, right? Is that there is this community of people and how this community of people interact. And yet Aaron and Summer have been in this bubble. And even with Amy and Jacob, they're still kind of in a bubble separate from Amy and Jacob even though they live with one another and Amy is being so sensible mm-hmm. and also caring you know she she she's given tough love but she's also like okay well you don't want me to do this then I'm not going to do it but I'm still going to tell you the truth and even that you know and and Summer doesn't have an awful lot of friends so for her to be like, well, then we're just not going to be friends anymore. Right. Amy doesn't need your friendship. No. You need Amy's friendship. Yeah. Amy needs your rent and she needs it now. Thank you right. very much. Yeah. So she can give it to Ed. Uh, yeah. If this- you're ever questioning, is Summer really an adult? Summer went to Carla to ask for a raise. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a different generation, right? Mm-hmm. But where do you get the absolute gall? To, to do that, thinking that you have a chance. Right, when you're barely ever at work and I'm, you're sick I'm, all the time. And I'm glad that that's what happened. And that mm-hmm. was actually a little highlight of Summer was her attempted impression of Carla yes. telling her to get to fuck. Right. Oh, well. Oh, well. Uh, moving on. Moving on. Our next storyline is Horny Ken's casting count. <laughs> How horny is Ken? He's super horny. That's because he's just been to see the king. <laughs> and his, his hot dog his, fingers. His fingers have improved, apparently. <laughs> Good. Because that ring's never coming off. Yeah. On Monday, Ken and Stephanie fucking Beecham are having tea in Nina's roles. She announces that her one-woman play that Ken totally rewrote has been given the green light and she's going to have to leave immediately for Hull, which means she's going to miss his play. Hull is approximately 100 miles away from Manchester. Hmm. Later... So, like, less than two hours. Yeah, two hours-ish. Later, he's in the Rovers talking to Wendy about programmes about stately homes. She senses something is up, assuming he's nervous about the play's opening night tomorrow. Brian comes over and throws Ken under the bus about the experimental play, which leads Wendy to realise that Ken actually dingied her call on purpose on Friday. At rehearsal, Brian apologises. Ken says, no harm done. He was having too much fun with Martha, but Wendy is a steady option. He's torn. Brian secretly is eyeing up Mary 
as Ken continues to moan about his terrible decision that he's going to have to make. Back in the Rovers, Ken is chatting to Martha this time and she comes clean about her intentions and asks Ken to come 100 miles across the Pennines to Hull with her. She gives him to the end of the day to make up his mind. He goes through his dilemma with Brian who is no use whatsoever but Ken reveals his heart is with Wendy. Glad I could help, says Brian. But when Ken goes to Wendy later, still in the pub by the way, she reveals that she wanted a word with him because she's not feeling it between them and she tells him she just wants to be friends. Oh, says Ken, who has mentally already jumped back on the Martha bandwagon. Right. I loved that, though, because it's like (laughs) he's thinking that it's because he's been, you know, obviously kind of infatuated with Martha. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, kind of, but not really. I realized I didn't care. (laughs) And so... This is obviously not a romantic relationship. It's more of a friend relationship. So mm-hmm. we can still be friends. Yeah. And still hang out and watch Stately Homes and stuff. Right. Love but their Stately Homes programs. They do. So later, still in the pub, he tells Martha that he's dumped Wendy to be with her. Belter, she says, and she nips off for a shite. Brian steps in again, utterly confused, but reveals that in his experience, lying to Martha about dumping Wendy is sure to come bite come back to bite Ken on the arse on the, on the eve of their opening night as well. Bitches and hoes says Ken. Bitches and hoes On Wednesday at rehearsal Mary's character seems to be a warrior queen now. And then Nigel bursts in. Disaster strikes he announces. The venue for the play has a burst pipe and the place is under 10 feet of water. How convenient. 10 feet of water. That means they don't have to build that set. <laughs> the play will have to be cancelled. It's always a burst pipe. Mm. The plumbing in Weatherfield is just dreadful. Well, the water's not very good anyway. Ken steps up deciding to see what he, a man, can do about the situation. Hmm. And later, rehearsals are ongoing. Mary's wondering why her character is an expert in jiu-jitsu. Nigel reminds her of the monks, and Mary seems appeased. Then Ken comes back and announces that he's got the bistro for the evening so they can do the play there in a restaurant. Sure. Well, they've done it before. Have they? Yeah, that that one woman, that woman one woman presentation that Ken and Wendy went to. <laughs> that was remember, a play. Yeah, but it was still like it was a book reading, a presentation. They've done presentations at the bistro. I guess a play is just a presentation. What other plays have they done besides you know they should have done it at the school where Brian vomited all. No, <laughs> never again. That place still smells of Brian's vomit. Ken and Martha are in Nina's roles She asks if Wendy really was okay about being dumped And he says that she was But then just before he can say anything else Nigel bursts in again Disaster strikes again He says This time one of the actors has literally broken a leg Yes, all of a sudden there are like two more actors in this play That we've (laughs) never never seen before (laughs) at any rehearsals So Martha offers to step in This is one of the characters that Evelyn could have been Right, or Wendy Later, at the bistro, the neighbourhood is coming in for a play they had no intention of ever seeing. At the play, Martha bumps into Wendy. The two of them don't know each other, but Wendy gives bartender Ryan her name for the plot to work. Martha overhears this and introduces herself, and Wendy calls them both the old squeeze club, and they have a little chuckle about that. Mm -hmm. But then it comes out in conversation that Ken didn't dump Wendy. Wendy was the one who dumped Ken. And Martha is furious. Mm. The two of us need to talk. She yes. says, and the two of them instantly seem to be friends. Yes. 
So and Jenny, maybe something more. So, well, <laughs> Ken's made them both lesbians. So during the performance of the play, Martha deviates from the plot to publicly out Ken for being a liar and a user of women and a sexist pig just interested in getting his geriatric hole. In other news, the play is gloriously disastrous and it's all bread and circus for the great Weatherfield unwashed. <laughs> I love I, I love Rita and Audrey and Roy are so good are so good in this scene, yeah. these scenes. I love it. Is that a horse? That's a giraffe, isn't it? I think it's a dog. <laughs> and it is it is it does look like it was Whatever it is, it does look like it was drawn by a five-year-old. Yeah, and, and then melted. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. That, that was like the highlight of my week. I only just wish Evelyn was back mm-hmm. to, to, to witness this. Brian, with his massive ears and his odd speech impediment, was yeah. quite funny. Yes. And then we had Mary going, Bleh! Beelzebub 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 Is that what she was doing? Yes Why? Voice exercises Oh Apparently No she was doing something on stage Oh Yeah I don't Yeah But um so the play is called Roxana. Roxana, and it's obviously uh, it, Serrano de Bergerac. Right, yeah. Yeah, this is Roxanne with an E with an A. Yeah. And with big ears instead of a big nose. Yeah. And also Jiu-Jitsu. And also not another person who hides behind the bush and has and proclaims his love for Mary. I don't remember there being an anteater in Roxanne though. <laughs> After the play, Ken goes Or to, Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, Ken goes to well was that couple of scenes with Steve Martin. Mm. After the play, Ken goes to apologise to Martha backstage. She thought he'd changed, but he's still a little boy, a girl chaser. He says he didn't want to hurt her or Wendy, but he's been caught in the lie now because Martha says she was always second choice. What about Hull? He asks. You can go to hell, she says. And also, to fuck. You can come to hell, Michigan, Ken. Meanwhile, Brian and Mary compare their disappointments. He thinks that she was awesome, a commanding presence, and he comforts her. And as they're sitting apart, he reaches out to her and then she kind of reaches out to him and they almost very closely end up touching fingers, mm-hmm. but they don't. Their, their fingertips just pass in the night. Yes. I'm so glad I was right about this. Yeah. Well, I was right about Mike and Esther. So Ken goes to see Wendy in the pub to try and work his way back in with her but she finds his attempts incorrigible she tells him that she's leaving for Hull with her new friend to work on her play and also, you know, and she and Martha leave Ken looking sad holding one of his many cocks Right, yes, as they as they ride off into the sunset together in sapphic adoration on Friday, Peter and Adam think the Ken situation is hilarious. The horny old goat. Yes. Mary comes in wearing sunglasses and a, a shawl. Did you call that a shawl? A headscarf? Yeah. Yeah, a, a scarf. Looking very uh, Audrey Hepburn. Greta Garbo. Not wanting to be disturbed. She gives, wants to be alone. But Adam, but gives Adam a wee smile. Right, yes. He's like, hi, Adam. <laughs> I'm not talking to you, Ken. Ken apologises for what happened last night, but Mary's too disappointed to forgive, telling him his chickens have come home to roost. 
Peter is actually sympathetic, but tells him he only has himself to blame. At least I didn't marry them, says Ken. Burn! Burn. Ken Burns. <laughs> Back at Eileen's, Brian has got the review from the Gazette, much to Mary's surprise. She doesn't want to hear it, deciding the show was a car crash either way when Martha stole her limelight. But later we discover that the review was fairly positive, calling Mary's performance deep. A shooting star is born, says the headline. Who calls Mary a trooper for keeping the show together after two performers went off piste. And Mary is chuffed out of her tits about this. Yes, she is. So Brian and Ken are chatting in the pub about Ken's fucked up love life when Mary comes in with the sunglasses and the headscarf indoors this time. Bertie wonders if her sty has come back, which I thought was quite funny. Bertie? Bernie. Yeah, Bertie. <laughs> Bertie is talking, but not forming sentences about eye infections. No. Bernie wonders if her sty has come back. Mary reads out the review to the pub and Ken recognises some of the phrasing and twigs very quickly that Brian was the one who wrote the article. Ken encourages Brian, telling him, you're in there. Yes, because if anybody is the person you go to for romantic advice... It's got to be Ken Barlow. It's Ken Barlow. <laughs> I think he probably is. I think the two of them would be lovely together. I think I've decided. Yeah. Finally, finally, giving Mary like an actual romantic relationship. I see a lot of complaints about, well, not complaints, but, but comments that they're pushing Mary into this kind of ridiculous caricature area. Yes. She always kind of goes that way when something like this is happening. Right. When there's a performance of some sort, she always right. gives it like a million percent. Right. And I'm sure she'll just wind herself back in again mm-hmm. after that's all gone. But I kind of worry maybe a little bit that, that her and Brian are maybe a little bit too similar. Well, maybe that's why they'll work. Mm. We are similar. But from but nobody's watching us three days a week for an hour. <laughs> that well, we know of. Well, yeah. <laughs> this isn't the Truman Show. No. The Broom Show? Is it? Good morning, good afternoon, good night. <laughs> or worse to that effect. People listen to us twice a week. I liked uh, Ken getting his comeuppance. Yes. That was maybe a little overdue, but it was nice the way that they did it. I'm glad that they did it this way. I'm glad that it was a kind of public... Um, and I'm glad it was... Pouring of derision. Right. And I'm derision. glad it was. it was the women who, you know put him in his place and mm. not you know that he didn't get away with anything and you know and they became friends and stuff it's yeah i liked i liked the way that this kind of pulled itself together and i you know i really like wendy i like the fact that she's like you, you know this is not working for me the way that i thought it would so Let's just be friends. The show never does this. I know. The show never has people come together and then just realise that, yeah, do you know what, we're not a great fit. Mm-hmm. And then go their separate ways. No. They always end up stuck together then forever until some massive drama happens. Right, exactly. There's never a, a quiet, right. just considered ending to it. It's like, do you know what, this isn't really working for me. No harm done. No right. foul. Thank you for your time. Right. And then Ken and then Ken kinda has to manufacture that by lying to Martha. But even in that, even though, you know, Martha does this whole big unprofessional thing during the play. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Even that, you know, it's done and dusted. It's not this like huge blowout. And Mm. I appreciated that. Yeah. There should be more of that. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's what right. Water that. Yes, absolutely. And you know, I did like the reactions of the of the audience in the play. That was fun. I just Ke- there they're never going to be that many of your neighbors going to go and see a play, even if it is right on the doorstep. But we can forgive that. But, I, I would just like to have seen a little bit more of it. But again, it's like the older people on the street and then the people that live with Mary. And that's basically it. Nobody else. Yeah, I guess. You know, not even Ken's own family show up. <laughs> not even Daniel shows up. And you'd think that this would be right up his street. Mm-hmm. This hoity-toity play that his dad wrote. I wonder if there does exist a, even just an outline of what this play is supposed to be. Because I, again... I think it's your taste and your humour, I guess. But when Mary start to do jujitsu, that's never explained, right? And and uh, monks that are never explained, right? And the kind of warrior queen She's that she is. <laughs> it's just such a Mary is Batman. It's a strange last minute deviation. Somebody called James Gunn. <laughs> it's good stuff. We got more of it than we got of her one woman play. And let's be thankful and, for that. Yes. Moving on, the next storyline this morning is Mad Max Three: Racist Road. On Monday, at speed dial, poor Yasmin has run ragged working on her own, which unfortunately makes Alia feel guilty. Added into this, Griff's determination to run the to ruin the restaurant. Doesn't want to run the restaurant. No. I don't think he would know where to start. No. At the Christmas market, Griff is with Spider, and Griff immediately piles on the intimidation onto Alia when she walks by, telling her the booming trade that speed dial is experiencing isn't going to last. When Spider goes off for a shite, Griff ups the ante, pushes Alia against a wall and threatens her far more obviously, telling her to watch her back. And he does this in the middle of a Christmas market well, that he, nobody sees. No, because he pushes her into like a little alcove so nobody can see them. Oh, damn you alcoves. Why is there a little alcove just there? <sighs> at the law office, Alia is shaken by this obviously and she talks to Didi about it, telling her she needs to spend more time at speed up with her gran to keep Yasmin safe, which means fewer hours at the law office. And Dee Dee is disappointed about this. And she reminds Alia that she... Oh, excuse me, Windy Pops. That she has a real talent for law or whatever job it is that she's doing. Windy Papadopoulos, even. (laughs) That was also very funny when when Windy was trying to help Ryan spell her last name. Yeah. And he's like, it doesn't matter. One brief time we see Ryan this week. It's like, oh, good. There's... So many people showed back up on the street this week only to be, say, like two lines mm. and then bugger back off again. Yep. Yeah, DD, I think, was a believable employer yes. friend slash yes. friend here by saying Look, all the stuff that you're talking about is absolutely very real, but you've got to think about yourself and you've also yes. got to think about me a little bit because I'm going out on a limb here for you and stuff. Right, exactly. At Racist HQ... Griff has a present for Max. It's one of those fancy mirrorless cameras that I've been reading so much about, I think. Spider wonders where the money came from, and Griff says it was one of their mysterious benefactors' donations. Right, because all of a sudden they have a mysterious benefactor right. who can who can afford expensive presents for Max. Griff makes Max their social media manager, and Max is made up, but Spider has obvious concerns. Obviously. And later, Spider meets up with his handler and fills him in. And then, and, I get, like that. and then gives him all the details about the benefactor, big plans and everything involving Max. Spider wants him to remove Max from the situation, but the handler can't risk the, the operation, but agrees to note Spider's concerns. 
Mm. On Friday, at number eight, David is doing a shite. He is. He's literally <laughs> doing a shite. Shona asks Max if he wants to go at the Christmas markets, but he has other plans now that school is finished. So at the Christmas market, Shona is incessantly chatting about Christmases of old to Lily. Then she sees Maria show off the market to P. Gate Len, who grudgingly has to admit that she's sort of done a half-decent job here. Max lands at the racist HQ and is given a warm welcome. They drink to useless dads and dead mums, and Griff has another present for Max. This time it's a top-of-the-range fancy computer, the one that operates on your lap. Just the thing for their social <laughs> media manager. Then Griff gives Max his first assignment. They're all going camping next week. They're training the troops. So Max gets home. As In the middle of winter, we're going camping. Max gets home as Shona and Lily are watching Elf. Max's nose is put out of joint when they started watching it without him. And moodily, he goes up the stairs and he has a lingering look on Shona and Lily for the longest time. Right, he's genuinely sad. And that's as far as we get with that this week. Right, yeah. He's like, why'd you start this without me? And, Sh- and Shona rightly says, but you didn't want to come. And you're a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I loved this because I think this is a very real thing where you're a teenager. So you want to display your independence and pull away. But there's also a part of you that wants to spend time with your family but you don't know how to communicate that properly yes so your family just kind of assumes you just want to bugger off mm-hmm. it happens in this house all the time it does <laughs> even even to the extent of another house right <laughs> you know because I, I think adult children go through this as well but uh you know I, and it kind of makes me think is this is this part of what is going to be the breaking point for Max with this group, which is is trying to very, very subtly say, your family sucks. Come be a part of our family, mm-hmm. you know, as part of the grooming process. They're not and watching Elf. No, no, they probably think Elf is racist against people who don't have pointy ears or gnomes. <laughs> I so I have two outstanding predictions on the storyline that have been running for a couple of weeks. Okay. The racist got to bomb shit, which I think there's something that happens in another storyline that may or may not lead into that narrative and the Griff is a pedophile. <laughs> You're still running with that. Which I am more convinced than ever after this week. Really? The camera, the laptop, and they're going camping. Yeah, but they're all going camping, and it's for training. Well, I will wonder who is going to be sharing a tent with Griff. Wouldn't they all have their own tents? There's not an awful lot of them. Where is racist Kelly in all of this? We haven't seen her in a while. We saw her last week. Did we? Mm-hmm. Oh, I she was on Max's arm. Blocked it out. Um, Remember, she was running in the ginnel in the video. Oh, yes. Yes, in that stupid video. I now have no idea what her character's name is. But it is Racist Kelly now. It is Racist Kelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, did you see uh, the real Kelly had uh, had lunch with her two mums this, this past week? It was so cute. I don't think I did. What was her mum's name? Laura. Laura the Chin and Toya and... And Kelly all having lunch together. Oh, that's lovely. Was on the Insta. Yeah, it's so nice that she's still 
you know, hangs out with, with yeah, her, that is nice. her soap opera family now that mm-hmm. she's a superstar. Well, she's not a superstar yet. Yeah. That's but pending. Come on. Oh, yeah. It's just a matter of time. This is what Doctor Who does for people. That's right. Look at Matt Smith. We now get to see his ass. So, if what you're saying is a poison chalice sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't... Th- my suspicions have been confirmed, but I don't think I can rule either one of them out at this point. I think it's kind of weird that it seems like all of a sudden there's this wealthy benefactor. Because there wasn't an awful lot before this that you would need an awful lot of money for. I mean, that flat's rubbish. Who They're is, rubbish. Who is the wealthy benefactor, do you think? Because I don't think you mention a wealthy benefactor without without us meeting the wealthy benefactor. Is it somebody we know? Is it Harvey? Could it be? Um, I, don't, I don't get the sense that Harvey's a racist. <laughs> Could it be... No, he just hates everybody. ITV Stefan? Oh, that's interesting. Why would we pull him back in, though? Because the way he entered the room is worth a million viewers. Or is it it Weinstein? Although he's very much not racist, because remember in the Ed's racism storyline, he He was was the the one one who stuck mm -hmm. up for Ed and fired the guy. Yeah. I can't remember if ITV Stefan's in, in prison, though. For perverting the course of justice, because they tried to steal ITV Corey and run right. away with him. Yeah. <sighs> Interesting. You would know. think I'm, that I'm it would be somebody we know. I would hope it would be. If there is a mysterious benefactor, I hope that we know who it is. Because that's an interesting little part of their then dynamic, again, isn't it? There's a crime committed in another storyline this week, and it's committed by somebody that we don't know. Which I think is connected to this storyline. Do you think? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think this is the racist got to blow shit up. I think a van packed. We'll get to that. Bit. Yes, we'll get to that. Moving on, our next storyline this morning is the Book of Stape. On Monday, Hope is listening to Stape's lessons on her headphones and rushes off embarrassed when Tyrone comes in. He and Fizz are still sure that this is Sam's mixtape. At the garage, Tyrone has enlisted the help of Gemma, or rather Gemma has insisted that she helps him get Fizzy's dress, correctly saying that Tyrone would be useless on his own. Kevin Abbey, because Abbey's back, wonder why Gemma and Tyrone are suddenly so close, so Tyrone has to come clean to them. Kev thinks this is a dreadful idea. Yeah, yeah, and all, and Abby is yet another one of those people like Ryan and Craig, who's only who ha- we haven't seen in weeks, shows up briefly... And then buggers off again. Right. Later, with Gemma's help, Tyrone has bought the most disgusting wedding dress that would make Las Vegas blush. And to make matters worse, as they show it off in the garage, the hem falls into a puddle of oil. Abby tells them it's hideous and will make Fizz look like a Vionetta. Much later, I did enjoy a Vionetta. Did you? Much later, back at home, Tyrone answers the door to see if when we're coming back home from Canada. Yes. I'm hoping we stop in Essex on the way. Uh huh. And pick up some Fionetta. Drop into a little British. What was it called again? Cor Blimey or something? <laughs> Blimey's. It was called Blimey's. <laughs> drop into Blimey's and stock up on some Fionetta. Oh, that's good. Well, we bit are tip top. <gasps> You're in taste heaven. Or maybe that British shop. What was the name of the British shop in Toronto that we went to? We haven't been to Toronto. We could go to Toronto. We could. I do love Toronto. Oakville. Oakville, that's where it was. And Burlington. 
there was there was no shortage of British grocers there. Mm. Anyway. Anyway. Much later, back at home, Tyrone answers the door to Abby, who has taken it upon herself to speak to Beth, who apparently she knows, and mm. got her to agree to do something with the Vionette address. Tyrone is initially appalled that yet another person has been brought into the circle of trust, but secretly he's relieved that something might be done to salvage something from this nightmare. Yes, this nightmare he's brought upon himself mm-hmm. and that Fizz is going to hate. See, I think even the, the stupidest man knows that no woman is going to enjoy a secret wedding. No. No woman is going to appreciate a man picking out her wedding dress. <laughs> Or Gemma picking out her wedding dress. No. <laughs> That's actually worse. <laughs> On Wednesday, Tyrone meets Beth in the Ginnell to hand over Fizzy's honking dress. Even Beth thinks it's a fucking disaster. Even Beth. Even Beth. But goes off to see what she can salvage from it. In the factory, Beth has got Gemma to be her model while she works in the dress. It's actually seeing it on a human is indescribably worse. You know, you think that the ruffles go all the way down, but like there's a cutout in the front where there's nothing. But then Fizz walks in wondering what's going on and Gemma literally has to think on her feet, which takes a minute. Back at the quad house, Fizz is made up because Chauncey and Gemma are getting married in the manor house. Chauncey takes the cue from Gemma and agrees, saying, yes, that is what's happening. Yes. At home, Fizz wants to push the boat out for her brother's big day and has plans to spend a fortune on an extravagant present which makes Tyrone's blood boil, but there's nothing he can say to stop her. No. Because he needs to maintain the secret now. Yes. That's as far as we get with that. Such an unnecessary story, right? I guess the only good thing from it is that it seems like the show has remembered that Gemma and Chauncey have been engaged for so long. Right. And so maybe, maybe they'll actually finally get married, Gemma and Chauncey. We are going to get to a point, probably in the very near future, where you're going to forget Chauncey's name and accidentally call him Chesney. (laughs) And I look forward to it. Me too. Yeah, a Christmas Day wedding that the bride knows nothing about. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? It's not as if people are busy on Christmas. Right. So nobody's going to gonna come to this. Nobody's going to come to it. We're going to end up in the situation where Fizz is cooking a turkey or some such, or is otherwise busy. And even, I mean, Evelyn, like the one person whose family besides Chauncey <laughs> is away. You know, it's still funny. For now, it's still funny. It will never not be funny. There are a number of athletes here in America named Chauncey, by the way. So? I just I just felt the urge to tell you that there are real people named Chauncey. Oh, I know. I know there are. There are. <laughs> it's not just uh, Jane Austen novels. No. Was there even a Chauncey in a Jane Austen novel? There no. should be. It, it feels more like a Bronte sister name, doesn't it? Oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Our next storyline is Simon's Alive. (laughs) On Wednesday. Huzzah! We remembered that Simon exists. Just like we remembered Abby and Ryan and and Craig exist. If only we could get Brian Blessed to read that out. (laughs) 
Gordon's alive! Oye, oye! On Wednesday, Nick is wearing his skin colour jumper again as he chats to Leanne about the bistro reopening when Simon bursts in. He's been sacked from a job that no one knew he had and he asks for a job at the bistro. Nick says they can barely afford to pay the staff that they have, so it's a thank you but no thank you. It's hilarious because you would think that like family would at least give you some uh, wash dishes or something. Sack Ryan. Right, because Ryan tried to steal from them, let's not forget. And the only reason (laughs) that Ryan got his job back was because of Debbie and it's no longer Debbie's bistro. Right. I wonder if that means that they're no longer her rape hotels either. Did she sell I, I thought she couldn't she couldn't sell the rape hotels. She couldn't get the money that she wanted for them, but I think right. she maybe sold that's, so that's why, why she, why sold, she the sold the bistro. So Leanne goes to streetcars to speak to Peter to see if there are any jobs going there for Simon, but apparently business is slow there too, and Steve is worried about enough work for them as it is, so again it's a thank you but no thank you. But late in the pub, Simon Simon's Leanne, family hates him. <laughs> Simon and Leanne are joined by Peter, who has spoken to Carla who has typically agreed to give him a trial in the sales team at the factory. Leanne is dead against it because Jacob works there, but Simon is made up and accepts anyway. Whatever, says Leanne. I said whatever. On Friday, Nick Nick and Leanne are are in Nina's roles, going over their stock requirements for the grand reopening, unsure how they're going to afford any of it. At the factory, Carla gives Simon the guided tour of the factory that he's already been in multiple times despite not working there, but Peter did. He runs into Jacob, who offers to show Simon more of the ropes. And it looks like the two of them have buried their grievances somewhat. Right, there's a bit of banter there. Yeah. lunch time at the factory, and Jacob tells Amy that he's had some bants with Simon, but it's too early to tell how well or otherwise this is going to go. Correct. And after Simon's first day, Jacob asks how it went, and Simon looks like he's taken the huff at this, and you think, oh God, right. this hasn't gone well at all. But... Simon says, look, I don't think we're ever going to be best mates, but we can get, get on together in the factory and right. have some fun and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And they seem to be on decent, yeah. probably positive terms, right. I would have said. yeah. It's nice. And then they watch the works van speed off, and it's not Kirk driving it, because Kirk's just finishing off his shite in the factory. That's correct. Always do it on company time, Kirk. Yes. Always. Yes. Simon and Jacob give chase and catch up with the van when it's stuck at a junction and they rip the driver out just as PC Tinker arrives from the kebab (laughs) shop to lift the bloke for taking without consent. Kirk, with toilet paper stuck to his shoe (laughs) and a haze of kebab aroma around him, is somewhat later on the scene. Yes, and and Craig rightly says, be careful, he might have a weapon. Mm -hmm. Which it seems like nobody thought of. And he gives his name and it's nothing that anyone's ever heard before. Right, yeah, but it's a young man. I thought it was Max at first. I thought it was as well. Simon, Kirk, Jacob and Amy are hanging out at the Christmas market chatting over the events of the day. Amy suggesting that they just let the van go next time, otherwise Mm -hmm. they could get hurt. Amy is such the voice of reason. Right, yeah. Leanne walks by and is shocked to see Simon larking it up with Jacob. Literally arm in arm. Yeah. So Simon runs to the bistro to apologise and says, look, if this is upsetting you, I'll quit. Nick says that they can't afford to sub Simon, so he better stick to the job, thanks very much. Leanne is shocked to discover that their finances are as fucked as they are and suggests maybe hinting old Sam's inheritance again. What well? Because she's done it once, so now it's okay to do it. Right. Then Jacob is leaving the Christmas market when a stranger runs after him, someone Jacob knows but doesn't want to see. Right. The stranger asks Jacob if he fancies a pint. Jacob dinges it and just keeps on walking, looking a little shocked and a bit scared as well. It's Wolverine. 
And that is, yes, it was. It was a young Wolverine. Yes. Well, not a young Wolverine. Just Wolverine. Just Wolverine. Yes. And that's how we end. It's a, a short, a short, burly man with with wavy hair and claws. Right. So, this guy, I think, is his is it his dad or his brother? His his, his dad. Okay. That well, man. That man is too old to be his brother. I did love when that nurse in the summer storyline called Mike her dad. Yes. It reminded all me. skimmed over that, didn't they? <laughs> it reminded me of those times that I've been in the hospital and doctors have assumed that my dad is my husband, which is disgusting. And That's a big old yikes that, right there. That, that says something to the way doctors think about men, mm-hmm. you know, having younger wives. It's just gross. Granted, I don't look like my dad very much at all. No. We have the same eyes, but that's it. Anyway. <laughs> so, yes, as fascinating as that was, that should be another item in Corey News. <laughs> and that's Corey News. <laughs> who, who Helen looks like. So, I would like to have known more about this job that Simon apparently lost that we didn't know anything about. Wasn't he, like, wasn't he doing delivery for another... Was he? fast food restaurant maybe he was working for five guys with with steven six fellas we got we got letters from the lawyers last time five guys whipping around on the mopeds um i'm happy that simon is back i'm happy that it seems like him and jacob are sort of playing nice with one another because i think it's it would be nice for simon to have friends yeah and interact with people his own age a little bit more Mm -hmm. you know I'm kind of bothered by the fact that he ran after his mom and, you know, was like, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll be mean to him now or something without explaining, look, you know, we were hanging out cause we, we just, we worked together to stop the van from getting stolen and stuff. Because I think Leanne would understand that then that it's, you know, the victory uh, of, I don't know. I don't know if Leanne would understand anything when it comes to Jacob. I mean, as as much as she doesn't seem nearly as bothered as one would think. As much as Simon had his running with Jacob, it, I think it's Leander that affected the most. Right, because he mocked Oliver. Yeah, exactly. So that's what she can't forgive. Right, and I can kind of understand that. Yeah, no matter how much of a good guy he ends up being, right, you're never going to trust him one hundred percent because because right. you will always hear that voice, and that's fine. Yeah, but. You know, that doesn't mean that you stop your, your son from making amends. Mm-hmm. And actually, you probably encourage it. Right. Because it's better not to carry that hate about. Right. Absolutely. I don't understand how the bistro is doing so badly. Well, That's exactly what I was going to say. Is because like, they've gotten that money from Harvey to fix it. No, it was to, no, it was to pay Debbie. No, it was uh-huh. to, I thought it was to fix the bistro. They couldn't, they couldn't afford to buy the, the bistro without... Harvey's money. No. Yes. No, yes. no. Because remember when Debbie found out about the wet rot, she accepted their initial offer, which which means they didn't need the extra money because she accepted the offer of the money that they'd already offered her. Either way, Harvey's money's spent. Right. But still, it's Christmas time. It's the bistro. They had a full house with this theater thing and people were buying drinks. Mm-hmm. Which let's let's be honest, that's where the money is. Well, yeah. It doesn't it doesn't make any sense that they would be doing so poorly. 
this time of year. Well, I guess when when they accept the money from Harvey, one or two things have got to happen. Either they start to make tons of money, so Harvey wants a cut of it, right? Or they make no money at all, and Harvey wants his money back, right? Or or Nick has to go back to Harvey and ask Harvey for more money, which I think is the likely right direction that this is going and in. eventually leanne is going to find out about it and be fucking furious about it because if leanne is as upset with simon hanging out with jacob how upset do you think she's going to be to learn that nick is in cahoots with harvey and is lying to her about it right because let's let's remember harvey tried to kill her yes harvey would have killed her if she'd been there right and Harvey may try again when he gets out, if he gets out. It's weird, isn't it? It's well, weird. it kind of means that the Nick and Leanne relationship probably hasn't got that much longer to run. Oh, that makes me sad. And that makes me sad too, because I, I kind of like the two of them together. Yeah, they're good together. But I don't think there's enough skin-coloured jumpers in the world to let Nick get away with this one. Correct. Let's move on to our final storyline of the morning, which is Mr. Osborne is a fanny. Yes, he is. Fuck oh, that guy. If ever there was any doubt. Fuck that guy. And oh, and fuck the writers. So much, so much infuriating about this. On Monday, number one, Daisy is complaining about Tracy hiding her magazine. Daniel finds it and it falls open at a page that interests him. It's an article by Bethany. Bethany Platt. Right, which... We don't see an awful lot of the plats this week, but what we see of them, not one of them mentions the fact that their daughter <laughs> slash niece slash granddaughter slash great granddaughter wrote an article that got published in a magazine. That mentions them. Right, right. A magazine, not just the Weather Gazette, <laughs> a magazine, a national magazine, which with perfume samples. From the... Uh, ITV Stefan stable, I believe. Probably, which is kind of weird and creepy. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Tracy had binned it, didn't she? It was oh, in the she'd garbage. Ha- she'd binned it and she'd torn the perfume sample off it. Yes, and and Daisy demands that Daniel sniff the magazine. Sniff, sniff Tracy. <laughs> Ew. Ew. And Daisy is instantly jealous. Later in the pub, Daisy is further jealous when Daniel sings the praises of the article to Ken, who also thinks it's worthy of, worthy of a newspaper placement. The article is about a young woman working in a strip club. I wouldn't be showing that to Ken. I wouldn't be even telling Ken about that. Well, Horny Ken, reading a story about this. So here it's is why this, to give him a heart attack. Here's this story. Here's this article printed in. A nationwide glossy magazine. Well, you're assuming it's nationwide, I guess. Well, it's a magazine. It's not a local newspaper. And Ken says, oh, this story that has been in this national magazine is worthy of our local newspaper. (laughs) Ken. Back at number one, Daisy finds Daniel hard over his laptop. But not like that. He's writing an article now because he can't see cream cheese gone by him. Daisy wants to know what it's about, but Daniel refuses to tell her, which makes Daisy even more infuriated than she already was, which was quite a lot, accusing Daniel of treating her like an idiot. He's furious at the interruptions, so he goes to Nina's roles for some fucking pieces he's typing. Brian stares over his shoulder, suggesting the piece would be better in present tense to give it that little bit more of immediacy. Yes. Daisy comes in. Which is good advice. 
And uh, now he's about to go nuclear, as apparently Brian is allowed to read his fucking article. And she storms off, advising him to remember to get some constructive criticism from Bernie before letting her read it. Bernie is only too happy to offer her services. Yes. As she has some experience in fiction by falsifying CVs. Yes. Hilarious. Absolutely. <laughs> On Wednesday... Bernie, the gift, the gift, the gift. <laughs> we forgot to mention... The little bit Bernie had in the Ken storyline where she's showing off these golf balls that she had printed with her face on them for Dev for Christmas. Yes. <laughs> and Ken's like, does that mean that he'd be hitting you? For, and Martha's, <laughs> Martha's like, like, just, just, don't, let, it, let, it just go. Go. let it go. Let it go. On Wednesday, Daniel is out like a light on the couch at number one after a hard day's session of shit writing. Well, because, a hard night session. He didn't even come to bed. He just fell asleep on the mention, couch. Because I forgot to mention, if Brian's telling you how your writing could be improved... Brian is smarter than he looks. Daniel's supposed to be this, again, another summer, just an Oxford-bound great. Mm. You should have been getting his masters and stuff. Well. And But Brian tells him the reasons why present tense is preferable here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he's out on the couch. Daisy's not impressed as it means that she's left looking after Bertie, so she shouts in the lazy shite to get up. Right, and Ken comes in and very nicely is like, oh, I'll take care of Bertie. And... And Daisy's like, no, this asshole needs to get up. Yeah. Later work, Daisy's through the back and she makes an excuse to get rid of Daisy, uh, Daisy, of Jenny. And when Jenny's gone, Daisy checks herself in the mirror and seems to be a little worried by what she finds. And when Jenny comes back, Daisy tells her that she's found a lump in her breast. Jenny covers her obvious worry, saying that it's probably nothing to worry about, but tells her to get it checked out. Daisy has an appointment with Dr. Gaddas tomorrow and is worried about telling Daniel after the Sinead thing. Yeah, it's very convenient that she has that appointment with Dr. Gaddas already yes. to, to discuss continuing the pill. Later, Daniel comes into the pub and announces he sent off his article. Daisy doesn't give a shit, which leads Daniel to the conclusion that she's jealous of Bethany. Daisy scoffs and says, if anyone's jealous, it's him. Correct. And he's confused. What would make you say that? So she spells it out. He hasn't written anything in years, but the minute that he learns that Bethany's been published, he's off battering away at the typewriter again. And this was absolutely spot on. Yes, well done, Daisy. Well done. <laughs> he thinks that she's upset because he didn't come to bed last night. So she laughs and says it's more likely because of the lump that she's found in her breast. And mm -hmm. that shuts him up. It does. He's shocked, pretends that he isn't shocked, and then struggles to think of the right thing to say and offers to go with her to the doctor. She tells him that she appreciates how difficult this is for him, given what happened to Sinead. <sighs> Just as well that we make sure of that, right? Just yeah. as well that that's Just said as well, out loud. Then we make sure that everybody is aware that Daisy is aware how much her potential cancer mm -hmm. is distressing to her boyfriend. Yes. Back home, Daniel is a wreck. Peter tries to talk him down, saying everything's going to be fine, but poor Daniel calls Daisy Sinead. Yikes. And then starts wallowing, thinking about his poor wee self. Every time he falls in love with someone, they die, he says. Either that or they go back to a life of being a sex worker. <laughs> right. Or they go to that London. Yes, and become a London. published writer. Mm -hmm. So not all of them die. I think it's no. like a... Let's go, it's one in four so far. Those are decent odds. Yeah. On Friday morning at number one, and Daniel is doing what he does best. He's making tea. He's going to that appointment with Daisy, but both of them have plans beforehand, so agree to meet there. He tells her that it could be nothing, and she says that she knows. Beth comes over to number one later with early Christmas presents. 
Daniel tries to tell a rapping slash rapping joke, but no one notices. Right. And Beth makes an unfortunate reference to poor Celine Dion, who has who just announced this past week that she had that has this stiff body disease where her body is slowly going stiff. She's and what? You, you didn't you didn't hear about this and and will eventually become no. will eventually die from it and so she's retiring and Beth makes a reference to I bet Celine Dion is really good at wrapping presents and I'm just like oh god how did they not catch this in time? well maybe they're like mean they've switched off the Celine Dion alerts they should they should have referenced Martha Stewart, especially since they mentioned Snoop Dogg. Nobody because knows who Martha Stewart is in the UK. They're best friends, Snoop Nobody Dogg and Martha Stewart. Nobody knows who she is. They do. They don't. They must. They don't. So anyway, Beth is wearing a jumper with a bobble red nose on it, and she has a special gift for him. It's a bobble with Daniel, Daisy and Bertie on it, and that shuts him up. Yeah, that and was really sweet. She's like, you know, if Daisy's going to be sticking around... I need to accept it. Right, yeah. This is Beth. Yes, I know. Beth and Daniel. Right. It's lovely. Daisy has had a coffee with Jenny and is off to the medical centre. Uh, they chat about Daniel making sure that he's okay, which is obviously oh, super important. fuck him. But Daniel is in the pub, slamming back the whiskey, and is already moolered and feeling sorry for himself. Right, yes, because this kindness of Beth has put him over the edge. Mm -hmm. Jenny comes into the Rovers after not getting her hair done and sees Daniel absolutely mortal stagger out the gents. Jenny reminds him that he has a place to be, but he can't. she can't say where it is. Right. Daisy, Daisy doesn't, doesn't want, want people to know. Right. And he loudly doxes Daisy, telling the full bar about her potential cancer, and he and Bertie are going to be left alone again. He wanders oh, out. Fuck him. He wanders out, ignoring Carla, who tries to talk to him. So Daisy's hanging around outside the medical centre waiting for Daniel. She leaves a message for him, thanking him for letting her go in herself, aware that he was getting bluted at the pub instead of being with her. But he's in the community garden, sipping away from a half bottle of whiskey. Peter comes along and tries to point out the error of his ways. His poor me, pour me another drink, self-absorption. Daniel is a total fanny, but he seems to listen to Peter and they decide that he's up to the task of being a decent human being and facing up to his issues. Mm -hmm. He says he's done it before, obviously remembering how he kind of cheated on Sinead differently from everyone else. Yes. Dr. Gaddis is with Daisy when our drunken Daniel bursts in demanding to know what's going on with this lump. <laughs> and he is a bigger dickhead than he's ever been. And he's been an enormous dickhead in the past. Yes. So Daisy tells him to get out, and Gaddis actually throws him out, and no one explains how Daniel was able to storm the room in the first place. Right. But Gaddas gives her a referral, or Daisy a referral, to move the conversation on. Right, yeah, she's going to get an ultrasound and some other tests. Books her in for tomorrow and advises her not to chew over worst case scenarios. And then she tells Daisy that she reckons Daniel is terrified and maybe she should cut him some slack. Fuck you, Gaddas! <laughs> what the hell, man? And Daisy rightly says to her... Hi, I'm the one with the lump in my breast mm -hmm. who might potentially die of this or lose a breast and have to go through chemo, etc., etc., etc. Now, the rovers later, Daisy is furious with Daniel while Jenny is angry at Glenda because, well, Jenny doesn't like Glenda, so any excuse right. to be angry at Glenda. Daisy says she hasn't spoken with Daniel, but they need to talk soon. She needs to be able to rely on him. 
Now, number one, a now sober-ish Daniel listens to Daisy's message on the phone. Then Adam comes in wondering if his article has been rejected and that's why he's so sad. Apparently, it was called Love After Hope and Daniel... Or Love After Loss. Was it Love After Loss? Love After Loss. Because Love After Hope doesn't make sense. (laughs) No, it doesn't. And Daniel realises that he wrote it about him because he makes everything about him. And just to prove it, when Beth comes back with Bertie, he lets Adam get on and... Let breath in and get Bertie. And get the kid ready for bed. So Daniel goes to the pub to apologise. He tells Daisy that he let her down, but the thought of losing her was too hard to bear. And this doesn't sound much like an apology. No. And tearfully, she tells him just to walk away or fuck off. I can't remember which. She thinks that she's his prop, his free childcare. You make me sound selfish, she says. Well? Ding, 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 says Daisy. It's all about you. It's always all about you, she says. He asks her to go home, but she refuses. She's tired of them. There is no them. There's only him. And she tells him to go home or fuck off. I can't remember which. And that's how we end this week's episodes. Fuck this storyline. Oh, geez, fuck it all the way to hell. Fuck it all the way to hell. Yes. Let's have another storyline where a woman's pain teaches a man a lesson. Absolutely. What the hell? What the actual fuck is this storyline? And again, what is in the water? In this town where two young women in the space of a couple of years have breast cancer. I mean, we don't know whether or not daisies, it could be a benign lump. It could be and just she a didn't have breast cancer. condensed lump of fat. She had cervical cancer. Oh, that's right. That's right. It was cervical cancer. But Why still, did I think it was breast cancer? Oh, it was Sally who had breast cancer. Mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's all... <laughs> A young woman with cancer. Yes. But this story isn't... You're right, because this story isn't about young woman with cancer. No, this it's is not just about a, Daisy. This is a prop to the to the Daniel right. being a self-absorbed dickhead right. for a few weeks before he realises the error of his, of his of ways. Of his ways, right. And Daisy apo- uh, accepts his apology. And, and takes him back. Right. More probably for Bertie's sake than for Daniel's sake. I, I mean... Oh, I mean, that that scene that the doctors, that's it after that, right? You don't let somebody... Well... Do you? When I was admitted into the hospital when I was pregnant with, with <laughs> Benny, and... Um, Is this Cory News again? <laughs> well, it's kind of relevant. Uh, my My former husband, first of all, his mother had to call him and tell him... He'd better get his ass to the hospital or else. He showed up completely intoxicated, could barely walk. And I stayed married to him for another three years. So women are dumb sometimes Mm. when it comes to these sorts of things. So it may not be over or it may not be over. Oh, God, yeah. but that was so embarrassing for her, though. She's there, she's upset. She's yeah, it is to embarrassing. Doctor. Trust me, it's mm. embarrassing. <sighs> and also traumatic, because there you are, and you are suffering, and you are scared, mm-hmm. and all you need is the, the person that's supposed to be the most in love with you of any other person in the world just shows up drunk because of their own selfishness. Right. Yeah. 
that sucks. And that sucks for Daisy. And it's just the ridiculousness of this whole, because this, this is something the show does over and over and over again as well. That really infuriates me. Whenever a man is an emotional wreck, he treats it with alcohol. Always, 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 always with alcohol. Always, always. Daniel. Peter done it plenty of times. Curtis, remember. Oh, God. Cur- Peter. Tyrone, I think. Yeah, Tyrone got really drunk one time because of something emotional with Fizz. I think that was one time that he tried to hit somebody or something or no, it was something with Alia or Alina. I mean, not Alia, but yeah. So well, there's a thought. <laughs> no. <laughs> so there's just women are the props to teach men a lesson and men can't process their emotions normally without alcohol. Like, these are the lessons of Coronation Street mm-hmm. and it's infuriating. I mean, I've never been Daniel's biggest fan that might come as a shock to you i am shocked but this is my shocked voice but i've never i don't think i've ever hated them as much as i hated them this week because yeah. it was it's so shitty so shitty so pompous so shitty so from the very beginning had been point of having his jealousy of bethany being be pointed out at him. and that to me was like fucking well done daisy for, right. for pointing out because normally they would let that go right and, and, you know, there's such misogyny in his jealousy of Bethany as well. Because it's not just, oh, somebody he knows got an article published in this magazine. It's a woman he knows that he tried to get into the pants of who is younger than he is. Well, they did have a relationship, having this successful, Kind of, but not really. It was like behind closed doors. And behind Sinead's back. Yeah. You know, oh, well, she's, if she can, you know, there's this sense of, oh, if Bethany Platt can do it, then I can do it, sort of thing. I mean, he's, he's Ken's son. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. The two of them, the two of them sitting there discussing, oh, well done for this, for this wee girl for publishing. And it's, it's so good. It could even be in a newspaper, sort of shittiness of Ken and Daniel. But sitting there but they've skipped a bit where the, the the generational jump should mean that daniel recognizes this and does everything he possibly can to avoid being this but he's 100 percent in this that this is all he is absolutely this is all he's ever been absolutely and despite having it pointed out to him and despite recognizing it himself that he's only ever thought about himself he goes from one scene saying i've made it all about me to the next scene where somebody says that to him and he reacts like he's the most selfish man in the world and right. being surprised by that. You are the most selfish man in the mm-hmm. world yeah. for doing this. Of course Absolutely. you are. Yeah. And so it infuriated me even before the story started because so many, so many of the like spoiler articles referring to the storyline referred to poor Daniel and and Daniel's reaction, and Daniel shocked, Daniel saddened, you know. There and there were a couple that poor Daisy is poor. Not poor Daisy may have breast cancer. Poor Daisy, you know, rejected by Daniel in her time of need, and it's like. 
I have no sympathy. Nothing for Daniel. No sympathy for Daniel. None. And it's it's sad that he lost Sinead, but he was a shit to Sinead as well. Yes, he was. He was so patronizing of her, their whole relationship. And at the end was a bit of a monster as well. Yes, with the whole Bethany thing. So I I don't think he's earned any sympathy because he's never... He's the true villain of the street. (laughs) Oh, my God. I like, you know, we're getting closer and closer to Christmas, as was pointed out by mm-hmm. Darren in the uh, in our chat last yeah. week. Ian McLeod has said this is a, a kind of a, a more light-hearted, family-orientated Christmas that is it? we've got coming, and nothing so far suggests that that's going to be the case. And nothing <laughs> in the spoilers suggests that that's going to be the case. Well, I wouldn't know. I, I, I don't want a Daniel Christmas. I'd quite happily have a have a Daisy Christmas. I think Daisy has been uh, brilliant, wonderful in this, brilliant, and brilliantly the whole played way by Charlotte Jordan. Yes, um, she is my favourite character. Fast becoming one of mine as well, despite yeah. hating her so much at the start. Right, but she's absolutely won me over because my other favourite characters have left the show. <laughs> Imran so, and Kelly are gone, so Daisy has moved on up from three to. Number one for me. But, um, yeah, it's just... Who thought this was a good idea? Who's, who thought, hey, you know what would be really great? If we gave Daisy cancer and it affects Daniel so much. And, and he, goes, he goes off the deep end. Who thought, bring back... The Anorak story. Yes. <laughs> That's what we want. Resolution to that over Christmas, please. Yes, please. You but know, no, I, I, I'm just... I'm I, just... It, it just... <sighs> let me have a go at starting a sentence and, and no. actually finishing it. Um, oh, no, I can't do it either. Uh, huh? I can't believe huh? that his family aren't... I'd, they forgive him, they listen to him, they, they support him. He's done nothing to, to warrant any of this. He tried to kill Ken, for goodness sake. Yeah, there's, well. There's so, right, so there's a little bit in column A and a little bit in column B then. But, you know, there is just so little redeeming qualities about him. What is Daniel's redeeming quality? It's like he got... He's a smart ass. Is that, is that his good quality? Is that his good side? And it's really weird because... Out of all of the younger men in that family, Daniel has spent the least amount of time growing up with Ken, and yet he is the most Ken. Because, I mean, Peter and Adam kind of have his Lothario ways, sort of, a little bit. But it's Daniel who's like, thinks he's smarter than he is. And uses $5 words mm. and sees himself a bit as a Lothario. And yet also seems to think that he's better than Ken, that he's more woke than Ken is as well. Because, you know, he he does call his dad out occasionally. Yet he is the most shitty to women than Adam and Peter ever will be, you know. And it's just... And Peter does try to, both Peter and Adam try to say to him, 
you know, look, this is really tough. I get it. But you got to think of Daisy and Daisy's needs. And if not that, you've got to think of Bertie's needs. Right. He doesn't do that either. No. (laughs) No. Of the people who take care of that child this week, we have Daisy, we have Ken, we have Adam. And Beth. Right. That kid is going to call Beth daddy. (laughs) It is a matter of time. And it will be adorable. He already calls Daisy mum, and yet Daniel doesn't stop and think, oh, you know, he does briefly mention Bertie and how how this will be worse for Bertie if Daisy dies. And remember, we don't even know if she really has cancer yet. No, and I don't suspect that she has because we've had far too much young women having cancer. Well. <laughs> we'd, we'd better not. I'm, I'm assuming that she's going to get the all clear next week. But it's been enough for Daniel to show his true colours yet again. Yeah. And it's not as if he's a great dad because that kid is pushed from pillar to post. Right. uh, Several times, as we've already said to several different people in a a week. And that's that's usual. So, again, redeeming qualities for Daniel. What are they? He's not a good dad. He's not a good partner. No. He's not a good employee because he has been unemployed for a while now. He has no job. Nobody, not even Carla will give him a job, which is hilarious. He's not a good brother. He's not a good son. Tried to kill his dad. (laughs) I'm honestly, if, if you're listening to this, complete this sentence for me. Despite the fact that Daniel does X, at least he has Y. Y. Tell me what the why is, because I have absolutely no idea. I suppose he's smart, but I don't think he's as smart as he thinks he is. I think he's an awful lot like Summer. Yeah. You know, because he thinks he's really smart, but I don't even feel like he's really all that book smart because he's made comments in the past about books that kind of make us scratch our heads even. Uh, (sighs) It's a wee shame. The true villain of the street is Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. He's even worse than Harvey or or Gary, because at least Gary is a good partner. Gary is Maria's number one fan and is always cheerleading for her and put her first when she had that miscarriage. And he's a good dad. He's even a good dad to people who aren't his children, like (laughs) Kelly. He's he's loyal to a fault. Yeah. And he will put his own life in danger for somebody else. Right. I can't see fucking Daniel doing any of that. No, no, no. So <laughs> the show, it's like the show tried to make Gary this big, huge villain. And, and it's been Daniel all along. In plain sight. Right there. Oh, well, that's that's the week that was Coronation Street. Uh, Tell me, Helen, what was your moment of the week? Roy and Rita and Audrey trying to figure out if that's a horse. <laughs> so just the, the three of them together right. in the play was... was it's just uh, so nice to see Rita every once in a while. Because Rita, once again, was a person who showed up, said a few lines, and then buggered off that we haven't seen in ages. Fair enough. I won't argue too much with that. I, <laughs> I thought uh, Brian and Mary's slight almost touch was kind of lovely. Yeah, that's a runner-up, but I kind of feel like we're going to get more of that. And I just... Anytime... Anytime we have the opportunity to point out 
why we actually watch this show, yeah, we well, should do it with both hands. That is our moment of the week. Our moment of the week. Your boring moment of the week. Ken and Daniel sitting in the rovers talking, <laughs> just like last year. Just like last year. Yep, that is our boring moment <laughs> of the week. Who oh, could have predicted God. that? What does she see in him? What does she see in him? I'm assuming he's good in bed. Especially now that she's a good character. And I guess he makes a good cup of tea. <laughs> well, that will get you some distance, I guess. I guess. Oh, well, if you're good in bed and you make a good cup of tea, write in to let us know about it. We're the talk of the street at gmail.com and we're at Cory Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and that Mastodon, I think, still. You can shout me and Helena coffee by heading to ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash the talk of the street. Check out the clicky-clicky section of vogel.co.uk for links to our merch store and YouTube channel. And if you're so inclined, please leave a rating and a review on the iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. Thanks for making it to the end of another episode. Thank you. Have a wonderful Christmas, everyone, if you celebrate. Be safe out there. And uh, happy Hanukkah, because that started on Friday. And we will be back round about New Year with some more... Talk of the Street! street. Bye!